not adjust the vertical. Do not adjust the horizontal. Don't touch that dial at all because we're on audio. Today, we speak with Tim Lukmiptev about learning to code, Bitcoin integration into Urbit, and how he learned to stop worrying and become a Bitcoin maximalist. Welcome to the stack. Will you tell us maybe how you got into Urbit and then explain how you got into the Bitcoin integration of Urbit? Yeah, Urbit had actually been on my radar since I want to say early 2017. And I found it like, you know, a lot of people do through he who shall not be named. When I first saw it, I think I mostly took it as a like useful kind of metaphor or concept. Like I really liked the idea of, you know, these identities that you could do various kinds of computing on. I, but I was like, okay, Urbit A clearly isn't here yet. Also, B, it looks like a lot of the stuff that it wants to achieve can probably be done by patching together various services like on top of Ethereum. So I went down that rabbit hole for about let's more than for like more than a year, including like, you know, helping some friends out with an ICO, writing a lot of like solidity code, like, you know, investing in like a couple of projects in the space being like pretty involved. And at that point, if we're kind of, you know, at end of 2017, beginning of 2018, I was really optimistic that a lot of stuff related to like kind of reputation and identity um, and kind of pulling together virtual communities uh, could be done with the Ethereum blockchain. And I think as time went on over the course of 2018 into 2019, I got very disillusioned. Uh, most of the stuff just like didn't work. There was so a lot of people focus on the you know either ICOs being overly ambitious or in some cases scams but i think the bigger thing is that a lot of stuff people thought would be technically achievable turned out to be way harder than anticipated like everything related to like you know quote unquote layer 2 just turned out to be really hard and i think everyone intuitively thought that okay we can anchor things to like Ethereum or Bitcoin, and then everything after that is an implementation detail. Uh, but that turned out not to be the case. There's, a, I don't want to get into the technical aspects, but there's a lot of very fundamentally, po like possibly intractably hard things about a lot of this. And it just looked to me like a lot of the stuff that I wanted to come into being uh, really, you know, really wasn't happening. And so that fast forwards us to... I basically kind of, you know, abandoned all of that, wasn't even, you know, sold most of my crypto holdings, like like literally basically everything. It was just in, you know, kind of more traditional assets. And then late 2019, for whatever reason, I fired up Urban. Ah, okay. So I know what it was. So one of my friends who lives in New York is friends with one of the lead Urban devs. And he was basically telling me, oh, yeah, like, you know, they're, you know, they're super optimistic about what's happening. Um, I think it's total crap and it's not going to work, but they're like really into it. So I like fired it up again in maybe December or so. And I don't know, were you guys on Urban at that time? If we're talking about a year ago this time? Maybe uh, February or this year? Yeah. Yeah. So okay. There you go. Okay. Yeah. So like roughly around then, right before. And it wasn't really usable, although I did like try to use it and there were like you know some chats that was like back in the days of like you type a message and then literally maybe 30 seconds to 60 seconds later it confirms back to your urban like it was really really slow and like i was kind of embarrassed to use it like my wife would be like oh what's this thing you're using all the time and i would like show her and she's like <laughs> oh. okay like not even in a like oh you're being a nerd way but just like 
you know, talk to me when like, you know, you can send a message in less than two minutes or something. And so what actually, and so then I like didn't really use it from about January to May, although it was still like fairly on my radar. Also at that time, I learned the basics of Hoon and went through their tutorial, but that was also like really bad. They, there, there wasn't any, like after you finish the tutorial and you sort of get it there, it wasn't really like obvious uh, what to do with it. So these things were like very much on my mind, like Urbit is pretty cool. And I think it like, you know, might be the future, but it has these big problems. And so then I can get to exactly when I started to get like much, much more into it, which was May, uh, May, it was May 1st, which is when my son was born and we were stuck in the hospital because he was a little bit, you know, premature and underweight. So I literally had to like sit in this like boring hospital room with nothing you know, nothing to do all day. And so usually whenever I have like boring downtime, I just try to find something to occupy my mind. And for whatever reason, I just looked at the knock docs uh, for the first time. Everything at that time in Urbit was like, all the documentation was like, oh, knock is weird and hard. You should go learn, you know, this other thing, like, you know, Hoon or something. I was, so I had always been like, all right, probably it's weird and hard. I shouldn't look at it. Um, and for whatever reason, I had extra downtime. I started looking at it. And at first it didn't quite click, but finally, I, I, I don't remember exactly what it was, but one of the basic operations, like accessing a memory slot kind of clicked. And I also figured out how I could experiment with it inside the dojo on Urbit's command line. And at that point it was like, oh, I had, it was like, not to get like overly melodramatic, but it's like, it's like the, you know, Helen Keller thing where she spells out water and you get like just enough traction where you can, you can like leverage that into something else. So the combination of being like, oh, I can kind of, you know, experiment with this code inside Urbit and I can at least get a couple operations. From that point, I just started playing with it more and more and started to have a lot of aha moments about like a lot of structures that felt weird and hoon and arbitrary. It was like, oh, this is why they, this is why they exist uh, because they're essentially a thin layer on top of knock. So I did that. And then soon after that, Again, with this extra downtime, this is about three days into it, I just sat down and started writing out a guide on Knock because I felt like there were just a lot of things in the official explanation that were like confusing or bad or missing a lot of steps. So I just wrote it out and kind of put it up and people actually seem to like, you know, up to the present day, be able to use that. And I, I can kind of go into more detail about like getting into Urbit, but at that point I was basically addicted, started like um, addicted to the process of like, helping other people to understand it from a social and technical perspective. And then soon after that, you know, Wikdev had that update where suddenly everything was fast. Uh, it was probably sometime in June. So about a month after that, and I've pretty much been, I don't know, I might, I might be Urbit's heaviest user. I'm on like a lot in like a lot of groups and doing a lot and uh, I don't like work. So yeah, I'm pretty, <laughs> I think... pretty, he pretty heavily involved in everything. Yeah, that's like takes up pretty much all of my time. Uh, the best yeah, thing I can I say is that, yeah, I mean, the best thing I can say is like I got so into it that you know prior to that. So I live in Ukraine, and uh, most of my time prior was I would just spend a lot. I didn't really have a project I wanted to do, so I was just reading a lot of like Russian novels and like working with a speech therapist and getting better and like my Russian like definitely deteriorated since May when I've been on Urbit because like nah. I just like do everything in English and like stop talking to my wife in Russian if I need to like explain something I'll like you my vocab is fine so I'll use like some big word but I'm just kind of fully in English like immersed on Urbit and it's you know, taken over my life because it's improving so rapidly and it's really cool.
so your backgrounds, you, you'd had experience as a developer. I mean, how how yeah. was uh, working with a subject-oriented language like Hoon, um, and and then a lower-level language like Knock? Had you had experience with that? And it, you know, so the background that I, I come from, Josh has mm -hmm. more experience. I mean, I know a little bit of C and Python and everything. Tried to do the mm -hmm. Hoon stuff, and it was just like too alien. And also, I felt there were ways uh. to contribute. I could contribute to Urbit and the community, probably, you know, the, the highest and best use of my time was on other things. Um, so, so I put it down. But, you know, yeah, how do you feel about Hoon as accessible? You know, is it about the docs and the Hoon school and everything and that's improving and should open it up to more people? Or is it always going to be this sort of Martian language? Great question. Uh, by the way, with regards to highest and best use of time, like that's something I kind of think about almost every day and try to refocus on with regards to Urbit because there's essentially infinite stuff that anyone can do. And I actually will say, I think most of the users are not approaching it particularly strategically. So I think it's cool that you guys have like done this with regard to podcasting community because podcasts was something I was actually looking at doing seriously a few months ago and then decided it like I didn't have a comparative advantage there. So it's like really awesome to see people filling the gap to the question about like, you know, essentially will Hoon and knock always be weird. Let's kind of start from the bottom up. I think knock will knock is only weird because it was poorly explained. I think nearly anyone who has like, you know, some programming competence can learn knock and it's a very small surface area. There's some things about it that are a little weird, but the surface area is so small that I think it's it's really easy. And it's actually like, I think, a better intro to subject-oriented programming than just going into Hoon because you're just like looking at the subject and manipulating it on like a very raw level. So that kind of burns into your brain. Whereas Hoon kind of, unless you have a really strong mental model of what the subject is, it's very easy to lose track of it and kind of have it behind a few layers of abstraction until right, you know, at the moment when you need to have the right mental model. So you can kind of be programming in Hoon a lot and feel like you're in something like C, but then, you know, just at the moment when you need to understand how Hoon is different, you know, you might not have a good thing there. Now, on to I think the bigger question is, will Hoon be accessible to at least, I think essentially the question is, is there a future where 30 to 70 percent of good programmers who want to use Urbit will be able to learn Hoon? Is that like an accurate restatement? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the concern would be, you know, and I, I think there's a lot of bad faith criticism of Urbit in general. <laughs> but but one of them obviously is is around Hoon. And, you know, the, the concern would be if you have, you know, I know Airlock and everything can allow other more familiar, more more widely used languages with more robust libraries. But if you have a part of the stack that is always sort of less accessible, that mm -hmm. could create long-term development problems. So I'm just trying totally. to get at, you know, what do you see there? Yeah. So I, yeah. So I think like my restatement is get, yeah, getting to that, which is essentially does it remain you know, inaccessible to exactly the people you would want accessing it? The short answer is absolutely not. And any perception in that regard is purely a failure of partly, I would say, education. And also, I guess this is also under kind of education pedagogy, but also kind of how Hoon is like approached. So 
if we took an example like even like JavaScript or something really simple, or actually, you know, Lisp is like a is like a pretty good example. But let's let's take JavaScript. If you spent all your time in JavaScript and like your initial course was learning the ins and outs of the weird quirks of the language, and also then like not writing any apps except like kind of Fibonacci generators and like very very abstract stuff not connected to systems. Uh, you would, people would probably think JavaScript was weird and hard, except for, you know, the analogy to C. And I think a huge problem with Hoon, and this is coming from, I, I said, I think back about a year ago, I went and like learned it, but didn't really sort of know what to do with it or how to use it. And I set myself after doing this knock thing in May, I set myself the arbitrary goal of I'm going to write a guide of how to like write apps for Urbit in Gaul which is essentially the runtime that led that kind of manages user level applications. And I basically said, I'm going to write something in this or die trying. And I found in the process of doing that, that I had to use Hoon in a much more practical way. It was very like kind of nuts and bolts. And also I had to like read a lot of source code in the existing, like, you know, in the existing apps. And my conclusion was, and like my experience was, it was way easier to learn Hoon that way. And I, I think the current way of teaching it, even in, I think the new Hoon school is really good. And I love those guys and work with them um, in Hooniversity. But even that approach, they're rethinking right now because it was too abstracted from systems programming. So Hoon is A, a pretty good systems programming language and B, a lot easier to learn if you learn it in that context. So there's an active effort underway right now led by um, Woolref Poblex and like Rabsif Bikrai and Rizra Kaptep to go ahead and make a course for Urbit that is more about, less about Hoon, but like exploring Urbit as a system. And like Hoon is like, you know, the language you need to do to do some stuff in that. So just as a preview of what they're going to do and how they'll approach it, it's going to look like, hey, here's Urbit. What can you do with Urbit? All right. You can like very easily, you know, trivially host like, you know, a web page with some JavaScript on it, you know, maybe like a to do MVC app or something. And like next step, oh, hey, you want to like connect that, you know, to do MVC app to your Urbit. Uh, here's how you do it. You can write like a little bit of Hoon, modify this stuff slightly. Here's like the incantations to run it on a server. Then you can get to stuff like, oh, you want to let other users collaborate on this app and like update the data in it. Here's how you do that. You know, you know, Hoon slash like the Urbit system make P2P network programming really easy. Anyway, to like back up to like the overall question, Hoon is like a pretty decent language. I think there's probably 20, 30 percent of good programmers who, for whatever reason, have a hard time with like linguistic or like visual associative memory tend not to like it. So very active member of the community, like Napter Maptep, uh, who's a very good programmer, has had trouble learning Hoon just because he just has like a hard time with kind of visual language, even though he's extremely smart. And I have like a friend like that who would get like, you know, 800 SAT on like, you know, in English and like it's just brutally hard for him to learn foreign languages. So Hoon is definitely biased there, but I don't think that's like a particularly big filter. And there seem to be some like benefits from the people who are able to do it, get really into it. And for people who aren't, which is going to be a pretty small percentage, but are still really into Urbit, there's nearly infinite stuff they can do to contribute. So yeah. that's that's my that's my answer. I, I want to move on to um, the the Bitcoin integration. That was hmm. when, when you when you started that, it was you taking up one of the what was it? Urbit.org uh, has these uh, bounties. It was was yours mm -hmm. a bounty originally? It was a bounty, and I really – so I want to say two things about bounties. One, I definitely encourage people to do them 
But this was definitely like a back channel thing where the bounty was posted and thrown out to a lot of people. But I think um, Woolref Podlex, who made the bounty, it, it wasn't like it was me competing against a lot of people. I, I basically asked him, like, do you have anyone who's like, you know, really good at Bitcoin programming who, you know, might want to do this because I don't want to step on their toes. And he was like, no, if you don't do it, it's probably just not going to get done. So yeah, when he like went in and did that and yeah, it's done. It's done as a bounty there for, I think it's like six stars or something like that. Why Bitcoin? Why Bitcoin integration with Urbit? And what, what is the, you know, why do you think that that's mm-hmm. an important complete package, I guess? Yeah. Great question. I hadn't, before doing the project, I, it had been in my mind as like sort of a nice to have, but not that essential. And the thing that really clicked for me was when, so I actually got into doing this bounty in the course, in the course of when like um, Josh, like Woolworth Publix was creating the bounty. He like threw it by the me other, and a lot other of other Josh. people. <laughs> yeah, when the other <laughs> Josh was doing it, he like threw it, the lesser Josh. Um, <laughs> he like threw it by, he threw it by me. Uh, just for like review, asking if I, you know, had any thoughts on the proposed architecture, which I actually didn't have anything that useful to say at the time, because this was like sometime in, you know, maybe uh, it was August. Yeah, it was in like a yes then. Um, so it was August. And I hadn't really done any Bitcoin programming or knew much about the RPC. So I, you know, I kind of read up on it a little and gave him, you know, as best I could, but I didn't think I would be, that I would be writing it. And so... The thing that clicked when I was reviewing the proposal was this concept that you could have the operation of within Urbit, click a button and say, I want to pay this ship. That ship handles all the kind of machinery behind the scenes of generating uh, Bitcoin address, sends it to your ship, which also automatically handles all the machinery of collecting the information necessary to make that into a transaction. And then the output for the end user who clicked the, the old, there's like zero friction. The user clicks, I want to pay this ship. And their output is, you know, maybe some like transaction string that they have to like input into another place and sign or to a hardware wallet. And that's all. And if you've like, I think you guys have both used Bitcoin extensively. And that's actually a pretty high friction step, like exchanging addresses. And there there is various software to automate that on the business level. But once you bring that into Urbit, and you can basically, you know, have two ships who both agree that I paid you this much. And we've associated that not just with the address, but the ship now. You can start doing all kinds of, you know, very turnkey applications in terms of unlocking access to content and things like that. And that was like a really big deal for me because this is like a lot closer to the kinds of things I was excited about in crypto in like 2017, 2018, where these kind of like, you know, programmable money, fully automated systems, you know, essentially people moving functions of their lives into like the purely virtual realm. And so that was like, that was, that was just super interesting to me. And so at that point, once I saw that that's where this was headed, um, I kind of had to do it uh, because I wasn't going to be happy if this didn't exist inside Urbit. And so I started working on it in beginning of October uh, with like, you know, that as the motivating, motivating force. When you um, started working on it, where where did you um, find your understanding of Bitcoin or Hoon or any other part of the stat? Where was the most lacking? Where did you have to kind of Perfect. spend most of your time? Yeah, um, early on, most of it was implementing some Bitcoin functionality natively inside Hoon. So there is like a Bitcoin RPC, which is essentially think of it as like you have the Bitcoin full node. And you can ju- and you can kind of send stuff out to it. The problem is that it 
all of that software, the, the assumption of it is that it's done for the benefit of a single user running their own node. So it doesn't work very well for the case of, I want to have a separate wallet and then just transact with that full node to find out the state of a given address um, or broadcast a transaction. So to do that, you need to have your separate. So if you look at any Bitcoin wallet that you have on your computer, uh, they implement that natively inside them. And then, you know, they'll interface with your full node or with like other nodes in some way. And Urbit just didn't have that. It had some like primitive Bitcoin functionality, but it didn't. I mean, do you guys know like the new SegWit style addresses that start with BC1 and stuff like that? Yeah, um, have you seen those? Like, you, yeah, yeah, exactly. So that was also my situation two months ago. I was like, yeah, I'm aware of them. But I definitely didn't know how to like implement them, which is which was required. And so I, I just had to go through the um, mostly JavaScript libraries uh, for Bitcoin JS lib and essentially like port them into Hoon to do this. And that definitely took the most time in terms of both getting a mental model for how all that worked and then just porting the code. And then the fact that insider that like the standard libraries even up till now, I think, uh, missing a couple of needed functions. So they're, they're, they kind of exist in some unmerged patches. So I have to like run this minorly patch system to do that. The Urbit part was definitely the easiest because Urbit is amazing for peer-to-peer programming. It's very batteries included and like just works. So the kind of primitives of, I want to subscribe to this ship and be comfortable that I'm getting all the messages or I want to do X kind of authentic. Like I only want to let these ships or this class of ships do things that's all built in and like can be done in like a couple lines of code. And so then everything else is just wiring up this basically state machine, which consists of like it kind of injecting a full nodes data into Herbit as one Herbit app. And then another kind of wallet app that does all the stuff like, you know, um, checks which, you know, maybe scans the wallet for an initial balance and then, you know, monitors those addresses going forward. So the I, I would definitely say, and yeah, this actually indirectly kind of answers the earlier questions about like Hoon. This is, this is like, I think, the first substan- really substantial app I've built in Hoon, even though I wrote up how to do it in Gaul in a lot of detail. I was always like kind of poking at the edges or finding edge cases. This is the first one I've done and it's like, a surprisingly pleasant experience. I think in the latest developer call, like Palfin Foslip mentioned that like Herbit's like pretty comfortable. And a big reason for that is once you do get the basics of Hoon, which again, isn't that hard, the type checking is like just good enough. So it's definitely not like Haskell level where, you know, (laughs) if it compiles, it probably works, but you can definitely do this kind of, I would call like bumper cars or like, you know, bowling with bumper rails kind of programming where... (laughs) you're kind of lazy and you just like kind of do some refactoring or make some changes. And like, if the compiler throws an error, you go fix them until it works. As long as your like overall logic is good, that actually gets you pretty far. So that was, okay. So like the hard, the hardest thing. So yeah, just to finish that up, like programming in the Hoon part has been pretty pleasant. And most of the annoyances have come on sort of the, actually, yeah, definitely the Bitcoin end and the last kind of moderately, hard thing I have to like figure out is just um, implementing some Urbit native functionality for creating uh, raw Bitcoin transactions to sign. So like if you do this thing where you're like, oh, I want to send uh, money to this ship, then, you know, have all the, your, your program will pull together all the necessary addresses. And then that has to be turned into like an output that other Bitcoin apps can understand. So that's definitely, you know, where a lot of the 
the time investment goes. Yeah. So what will what will we be able to do now? Yes, you'll be able to do two main things, and you can think of them as kind of internal and external. The internal one is that you'll be able to send Bitcoin to any Urbit ship and have your ship and theirs record, you know, that that happened and that amount in a way that's programmatic to, you know, any other app inside your Urbit. So you definitely want to think of this as like kind of a base level, a base level primitive, allowing that, which on its own is pretty cool. The second thing is that with only a very minor extension, you should be able to, or definitely can, enable your Urbit ship to accept payments from the outside world and assign at least kind of a temporary identity to those payments, meaning that you can, um, you should, I've been talking with TechRate Socrate about this, um, Logan, you you should be able to basically make an Urbit Substack at that point, or even, you know, an Urbit Patreon, which is basically, you know, you expose some content. And when people pay, want to pay, your ship will generate an address for them to pay to. Uh, they can do that using, you know, another Bitcoin system. And then you'll record some like some ID for them. Uh, but at the base level, the thing that we'll be able to do initially is make payments to other ships while abstracting the Bitcoin layer and record those so they can be programmatically used uh, by other apps. That's the the dream for us is is putting the stack on top of uh, on top of Urbit instead of having to host our own. I think we're on Namecheap or something like that. I don't want to do WordPress. I want to be doing it on Urbit, getting paid. Yeah. So that's like. So one thing I would say about that is a surprise, like Urbit is surprisingly small. And in terms of just like Tlon, it's like surprisingly few people doing a lot. So anytime there's a feature that you see as like, I, I call them like kind of, you know, N plus one features, something that can be done as the next step that doesn't have, you know, too many steps from here to there. And that is also really desirable. Anytime you like, like if you think like, I have a use case right now for doing, you know, essentially WordPress on Urbit. It's like highly recommended to be the squeaky wheel and talk to like the Urbit Foundation, uh, specifically Walruff Podlix, about, you know, hey, I think this thing would like be a really big deal if we had it right now. It would be really useful. I think it's like technically doable right away. You know, is it? Am I missing something? Because there's the reason for that is that there's actually a lot of like poorly allocated resources floating around in Urbit. Because Tlon is a company, that stuff all works really well. But the community as a whole is like there, there's a ton of dispersed energy. And this isn't really calling anyone out. I mean, I see a lot of people who don't want that to be the case. And it's something we're, you know, really trying to fix. But it's it's an issue. Like a lot of the I don't think I'm like the world's greatest programmer or explainer. And like there's Bitcoin absolutely could have existed in Urbit previously. People absolutely could, you know, write guides about how to like write programs on it or, you know, actually write something good about knock. But a lot of energy gets dispersed because I think because, A, the people who are attracted to Urbit right now are pretty independent minded and not neurotypical. And so unless they're like given something really explicitly, they're just going to do really random shit to start. And yeah, I mean, that's that's most of it. So there's there really do, do need to be some consolidating forces. So if there's something that you think like would help it's definitely good to start like raising that early and often and hammering it because there could literally be tomorrow some random programmer comes on who like autodidacts themselves through hoon and then is looking for a project and the, the presence of projects like being there or not determines whether the thing gets done 
Well, on that note, what is the what is the N plus N plus one project that you want to see on Urbit besides Bitcoin? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think um, yeah, there, there's a couple. They're all pretty closely related. So probably the first one would be I'll just call it like you know Urbit Substack. I think that like right. that needs to happen, and we're gonna talk about it because because the pieces are already there. So it's definitely N plus one from an achievability point of view. But I also think there's like people on Urbit who would want to, you know, do that to a wider audience. So that's one of them. I think Lightning Network on Urbit might be, you know, plus two or three. And I think it probably shouldn't be done until Bitcoin transaction fees are a lot higher. Like as long as people are essentially paying like, you know, one to a couple percent fees for their payments, I think that's like sustainable. So I don't think that's like a big deal. Another one is um, making hosting better, hope, even hopefully from a non-Tlon perspective. So kind of a like barely technical or community one that would be really useful would be someone pulling together exact instructions for how to host like, you know, five to 20 of your friends in the cloud. And someone just did a really good guide for how to, you know, run an S3 server um, using your extra cloud or local disk, disk space. So now I'm using that instead of DigitalOcean. And I think, like, because users on Urban are so motivated and talented generally and so self-selected, uh, there's, like, an outsized impact to, like, you know, making it easy for five or 20, you know, smart people you know to get on. Uh, who might not have time to, like, you know, go through all the setup or manage everything because they have a day job. But would be like, you know, really excited to be in it. Yeah, then the final one that I'm looking at and deciding whether to help out with or do is everything related to voice on Urbit. So WebRTC works. Woolref has like, you know, some good resources and people who have a lot of experience in that. And we're looking pretty heavily about getting like how to get Urbit native audio, either like, you know, one-to-one calls, but I think especially I guess I would call it like kind of Urbit Clubhouse, I think would be a big deal. Is or even a, the things a, a like inline audio. Yeah, inline audio. Like basically like even negotiating this discussion that we're having right now, aside from the fact that we want to record it, like this is like a thing yeah. that should obviously be doable through like our browser or phone through Urbit. Like we should put I should push a button and we should all be talking. How has the project changed your view of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency? So that was in like for full disclosure, that's already been changing over the course of the year. Um, and I think a lot of people are having that this year where Bitcoin has gone from, you know, do I, you know, do I want it? Or like, you know, is it better than having it in these other assets to is there any asset except Bitcoin that I can like justify putting stuff into even non-speculatively? So like for just for example, I'm like I've like invested pretty heavily in real estate. Um, in some markets that have like done quite well and like by any measure they were pretty good investments but like right now i think corona highlighted for me the fact that like those cash flows can go down significantly and also that i really was using the real estate as like this kind of hacky store of value essentially giving you know we call it you know the monetary premium for something like for something like real estate and you start and I think once you have that insight, you just start looking around at everything in the world and you start seeing different degrees of monetary premium everywhere. And you start and you're like wondering, OK, I have these like dollars coming in because I'm selling some assets like, you know, what can I put them in? Or uh, you could say it is like which of these monetary premiums is justified. And 
people really didn't think in these terms a lot before this year. That's like very fringe thinking, but I think it's becoming more normalized. So the biggest thing I think that the two biggest things that made me like sort of super BTC maximalist weren't exactly this project, although that's definitely helped and I can go into that. I think it was understand, like really internalizing the fact that over the last few years, Bitcoin has credibly committed super hard to their supply guarantees and that, you know, no one else is close to that. Like ETH is explicitly inflationary um, and a lot of other tokens are more like equity. But like Bitcoin has made it through, you know, the forks with flying colors um, and also made it through, you know, the initial Corona like crash with flying colors and now seems to be like decorrelating from everything. And the other thing then that like really got me on Bitcoin was when I, you know, bought some gold as like, you know, sort of an additional thing to put money into as I was cashing out of some other assets. And like gold sucks. Like I didn't realize it because it had always been like a theoretical thing. You bought like, physical you know, physical gold. I bought I bought I bought physical. Now it was like vaulted elsewhere, but I, I you know I don't think the things I'm about to say really change if I had like held right. it. It would just be different types of sucking, you know, on different dimensions. But like you can look at charts all day about how like okay Bitcoin is A plus in scarcity and gold is like A minus and you know but until you like actually hold gold and hold I didn't even get to the point of holding a significant part of net worth in it uh, I was planning to but it just sucked so hard that I just like never got to that point until you like actually start doing that it doesn't really resonate and when I was like crap, I have to either hold this thing like, you know, myself and have all these massive transportation issues at a time when I might just want to like move across country borders at a moment's notice. Um, or I can hold it in like a random vault in like Singapore or Switzerland, by the way, paying like, you know, pretty high annual fees. Um, and all like, you know, and all this other stuff. And like, I just like had this like feeling at night where I'd be like, no, no, I just, I would just rather have Bitcoin. And that feels like way safer. And I, I remember in chat, I think it was Sivner, asked me in Urban a few months ago, oh, would you feel safe having like, say, like, you know, a million dollars in Bitcoin? And at the time, it was like, you know, maybe a little hesitant. And like, I think now it's, I don't know, I don't think I would feel like particularly safe having it in anything else. In terms of this project, it made me more of a maximalist in that I understood a lot of the underpinnings of Bitcoin and a lot of the stuff in terms of you know, how it's secured, how addresses are generated, different ways of backing it up uh, made a lot more intuitive sense. And I felt a lot more control over them. Um, and they and also, I think running a full node and seeing that just um, made it differ for me qualitatively from, you know, ETH, which is essentially like a private database run on Infura now. And there's pretty much no way you could validate it from scratch yourself or, you know, sort of having money in the bank or something. And I think also the project... I just started to feel really good about, you know, when you find something that's like really simple and it's very easy to work with, Bitcoin was like you kind of running a Bitcoin full node and also doing more programmatic stuff with it. It felt a lot like, you know, discovering like a really nice pen and paper. You just feel like pretty good about the thing. You understand the tool and grok it and like you're fine to expand it, but you kind of don't want to go crazy and lose a lot of the things that make it good. So kind of a roundabout way of answering it, but hopefully that gets at some of this yeah. stuff. If you think about then, do you see any value to ERC-20 or other sort of smart contract enabling protocols? Or, yeah. you know, we... <laughs> um, oof. yeah, because if you had asked me even not that long ago, I would have definitely said yes. My answer is probably still 
Look, I mean, my answer has to be yes to some degree in that, like, I'm pretty happy with my Urbit ID and ability to, you know, move it around and, like, hold that. I don't think that the way Urbit IDs are used requires an ETH ledger or that's even, like, that desirable. But it's it works for now. In terms of a lot of other smart contract stuff, I've moved from like thinking that various types of oracles were like a great idea and definitely going to happen to thinking that there a might be like just completely intractable problems with linking the physical world to the digital programmatically and also be really wondering whether that's desirable. And I think Urbit is, has probably been the catalyst for a lot of that because a lot of the things that, you know, maybe I would have wanted to do with various smart contracts, I think can actually be managed better with like, let's let's call them like, you know, urban civilizations or communities, because I just had never encountered something where you can like build reputation for an identity, have an interface across a lot of different applications and groups easily, and, you know, have like, you know, essentially infinite capacity for that to expand. So long answer would be that I think urban tools are going to do a better job of what people want smart contracts to do in a lot of dimensions for the simple reason that anytime you want to link something outside in the physical world to a smart contract, there's inevitably going to be some like, you know, impotent, there's going to be some like mismatch between that representation and it's, you know, what link to the smart contract. And that's usually going to be negotiated like either legally or socially in some way. And so I think like, a lot of it ends up being digitizing theater and Urbit makes it a lot better to handle those things in like a more traditional governance way. I also think that I've, I've really come to believe that like money is a distinct type of good and like getting it right digitally matters more than like almost any other kind of good. And so even if like something else does work, I just see it as like just a, a tiny fraction of Bitcoin's total addressable market. But the Urbit part of my answer is probably the part I kind of believe more strongly, and it's the most interest, more interesting part. Where do you see Urbit in 10, 50, and 100 years? I think it's probably best to start it from like describing a current operation that you can do on Urbit that's like really familiar to people who use it a lot now, and is people outside would like understand it, but don't understand like how cool it is or all the potential. And that operation is like you're in like a random group or in different ones. And someone either tells you about some private group and you like get into it and there's this whole world you like didn't know was there or you like see someone across different groups and kind of like pluck them out into yours or start like a private conversation or have new stuff spin off. And like the seamlessness that Urbit allows that kind of coordination to happen uh, is really crazy and underappreciated because like when people try to do that, people do try to do that in like Twitter. I mean, let's do an analogy. So when I was like locked down in April, I started to use Twitter pretty heavily um, and made a few friends. But like there was a lot of like massive kind of friction between any operation. So you like meet someone and you start, you know, you maybe you reply to them a bit. Then you start like DMing. Then you're kind of like, oh, should we move this to another platform? And that's this like slightly awkward thing that has to be negotiated where they're like, okay, they give you their telephone number to look them up on telegram or do you trust that platform? It's, it's weird, but like anytime you introduce any, anytime you have like humans have to do something that computers should be doing, you get like really bad friction. And so even that like negotiation, if it takes three seconds to like 10 minutes to negotiate, 
that's still, you know, millions, potentially billions of times slower, you know, than the operation, than the operation of like, have your computer do it automatically. So, so let's like, then go back to where is urban in 10, 15, 30, 50 years, those operations will still be happening all the time on urban, which means that you'll be having more and more like urban first, like urban native communities where the people you know, might very well know who each other are uh, by their name, by their real names or meet in real life sometimes. But like Urbit is the real center of activity and everything is negotiated there. And a member of the group who doesn't participate physically isn't particularly disadvantaged. Um, but also, I think like the range of those operations is going to grow substantially. So I think we're going to like see it go to from right now where it's like you can participate in different chats with them or some blogs to, you know, next you can send them money, to you can like easily start conference calls with them, uh, to, you know, you can easily run businesses with them um, of different kinds on it. Um, you can, you know, um, coordinate like homeschool for like all your families and those resources. And so essentially like the operations are going to grow further and further and the networks are going to gain a lot of value because like Urbit is an inherently coordinating technology, whereas something like Twitter is like an inherent honeypot where like you can like invest in it and grow it, but at exactly the time when it, you know, might make some kind of impact, um, it's very easy to have all of your, you know, nodes on it smashed or all your connections. And I don't know if this, you know, that's by design, but that's definitely like the effect. Whereas Urban is like sort of the opposite. Like the more people you know or the more things that happen with you, like, you know, the more nodes you have, the more resilient you are, uh, the easier it is to like do high value communication with people. It's just it, we, we haven't experienced. I mean, th there's versions of it. And I can probably look back through my past Internet life to find like some good versions of coordinating technology. But this is like just on a completely different level. I, Twitter is interesting to me because um, of any social, so-called social media, uh, it's the only one that I've ever found any use for at all. Um, you know, I haven't been on Facebook forever, um, and I use Twitter even like professionally just to follow news and everything. But to your point, there is just so, a like I don't think it makes a whole lot of sense as a business. I mean, like I I never really see many ads and everything. So I don't know how they how they make revenue. But like you said, I mean, there's something like ephemeral and impermanent about people's identities on there for one thing. And the structure is not really set up for long term. So um, yeah, I don't know. But what, what were you going to say? Well, so yeah, well, so just walk through it yourself right now as like a thought experiment. Let's say you like, want to use Twitter for the purpose of finding people to, you know, maybe let's say start businesses with or educate your kids together with, right? Over time, like walk, walk through the process. Like let's walk, let's look at what you do in order to do that. You, you like, I don't know. What, what would you do? I can tell you like what my plan would be for it. It's, it's well, right. like I'm so, fighting so I, the medium. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I would, uh, you know, you kind of have like a call, a public call, right. Um, you know, where you say, okay, this is something that I'm interested in. But that's visible to everybody, some of whom may be very antagonistic to what you're doing. And they may have, you know, a better inroad to hires up in the, you know, so can get you canceled or whatever. So, th so that's one thing. Or you kind of then can go into a DM group 
which uh, mm-hmm. then is very limiting on who else you can reach out to. But also, it's just inherently you don't know who's who's watching it. Or yeah. I mean, I was that not not to get like too political. I mean, we've already discussed it on earlier episodes, but, you know, with like the Hunter Biden laptop from hell. Right. You know, and it, it could have been any other example. You were no longer able to share that internally, mm-hmm. even in private messages. So that's very intrusive. And obviously, you know, very political. So, so yeah, obviously, yeah, there's, there's a, a significant limitation. I mean, you know, what, I mean, Twitter is like the the gold of social networking. Like, it's like better than anything else if you don't have Bitcoin. But like, once you have Bitcoin, like, all you can feel while you're using Twitter is like, man, a lot of things about this just like really suck from a user experience perspective. Like, like let's go back to you trying to even get in those DM groups or get a call out there. Like you're gonna have to start like by getting attention and followers so that anyone takes you seriously. So right. you're gonna have to use, like performative monkey dances in people's mentions to like then try to get some other people interested or have something else to like even maybe get into those DM groups. And then once you're in there, like even leaving aside the like, you know, censorship aspects or ability for them to like, you know, track you, which is pretty bad. It's it's a crappy format. Like it's one chat. You don't even have the ability to split it into others uh, that you have in Urbit. It's it's just a it's just a really bad UX. It doesn't lead to anything else easily. It's very hard to then get other members to engage off platform seamlessly without negotiating the friction mm-hmm. that we talked about. Um, and then if you want to meet anyone else, um, you know, you're going to have to go out and do that like performative monkey dance again. It's like I don't like Twitter to me is like whenever I'm using it, I just keep having this feeling of like, there's a lot of valuable people here, but it's like I'm being forced to interact with them in like kind of a crowded nightclub. And until I have to like get attention and like, and then at any point, if like, you know, one of the bouncers doesn't like what we're talking about, they can throw us out. It's just a really, it just sucks, man. It's like gold. Yeah. The only, the only thing that I think they've done well, maybe it sounds trivial, but restricting the number of uh, reaction things that you can do in a DM to like four. I think that that actually is nice, but you know, I, I yeah. agree with you and, and there's, if you I... know, <laughs> yeah, but you know, yeah, you're, you're still sort of inherently uh, subject to a lot of, of weird stuff. Now I have to say, I mean like, you know, Josh and I would not know each other like, but for that, and mm-hmm. we would not have gotten our first planets, but for that platform, mm-hmm. you know, so I, but I, I think, you know, it's definitely a part of the legacy internet, right? That, um, yeah, certainly Urbit is within the possibility that it can supplant it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm not even like, uh, I think this has been gone over. Everyone who's, you know, familiar with Urbit understands this criticism. But I mean, really, the problem with these platforms, I think, isn't so much the whole like, you know, big tech censorship aspect, as much as that, like, technically, they have no option to go any other way. Because essentially, in like 2004 ish, we figured out this kludgy hack where you could, you know, kind of throw everybody onto one server. And then like do everything there. And that enabled like, you know, to vastly scale the, like the interactions and pro- provide a good enough technical experience at, at the limit with the limitation that all the users are just lines in a database and that all of the interactions programmatically just involve, you know, changing properties um, of that database. It's just it's just pretty technically limited. And so I think people who kind of rail about things like big tech censorship um, and their solution is to like 
move to whatever parlay parlor or gab or something like they just they just don't get it like yeah maybe you're not censored but like the the types of available interactions are incredibly sterile and don't lend themselves to these to these like virtual first communities that i think are going to be insanely popular and useful and powerful in the post let's call it the post sf nyc world which we now live right the other thing that that we we talked about this offline which is that there's a uh an incentive on twitter to uh how can i say this diplomatically it's it's the incentive there is for what do we decide for for, for sort of I think shallow approval shallow, approval, see, approval approval see. yeah shallow interaction or approval from others that you don't get uh on urban yeah. or at least that's not that's not the driving force oh no definitely definitely and so i think people call it like um they call it toxic but i think that misdiagnoses it the, the central problem is that it like it re- the only thing it really rewards and we even talked about this a second ago we were saying how you would go about finding people on orbit and you would have to perform it like it, it only really rewards this kind of approval seeking performative thing which has a place in life. There's a place in life for there to be celebrities and people who perform for us and like do that. But it's that, that mode isn't very conducive to getting stuff built. And you can actually see this on Twitter a lot. And I, I think sometimes people make fun of the like kind of seemingly impotent, like we can call them like, you know, grillers or like people who just want to be left alone to build things and who are like, you know, they'll, they'll be on like Twitter a lot. And they're like, man, why can't everyone just be like nice and civil? And why can't we have these discourses I remember from 2003? And like, you know what? I think a lot of it is we've we've kind of failed those people. These are people who just need to be given good tools to let them network with people and build stuff. And instead they're like forced into like trying to become celebrities. Um, I mean, I can, I can name names of like, you know, people who kind of fit in this um, who are like relatively well-known. Like you can look at someone like um, the Lambda School dude, like Austin Allred, like, you know, mm-hmm. Mormon dude just wants to like build his business and is really just doesn't get what's happening politically right now. And that he's at the center right. of a lot of different forces and like doesn't want to be a performative monkey. But like that's the only kind of thing that he's left with there. Incidentally, a lot of these people do seem to like things like Clubhouse a lot. Because I think it's way inferior to what Urbit can be and almost to what Urbit is. But it does, you know, let you do the thing, like get away from like the performative aspect and get more into I'm networking with people to talk about real things and to like build stuff. And so I think we've really as a society or our tools are bad for grillers and builders. And I think Urbit is amazing for those people. And a lot of them are going to like really love it once it just works like they'll feel what free do you, what, you know, and like right now what do you see as like the biggest constraint i mean in some ways you want to kind of rate limit the people that are coming into urbit up to a certain point huh. you i know, actually don't but, know about that yeah i actually would push back okay. there i think urbit is right. urbit is already has such good tools you for things like you know, yeah. I think it's, I think it's there. I don't think it really has to be rate limited. And I actually told myself as a project since about August that I would be operating as if it was already like you know eternal September when like just there's an endless stream of noobs forever. And so I made you know my all my groups like private. I started doing different processes for getting in them, not because I wanted to exclude everyone, but just because I wanted to be ready when that like happened for real and we might already be there. And it's yeah. it's worked out like amazingly well. I've been able to like add people stay on top of like what's out there i think it'll be even easier once there is kind of an you know urbit player versus player battleground or twitter type thing you know where i can suck some of those people in 
as it's obvious, like who's who. Yeah, I don't think the rate limiting is necessary, and it would be cool if it went away. Actually, I think your question was going was going to be though, like, what were the biggest barriers to like having people? Sure. On yeah. Yeah. Um, the biggest barrier is hosting. The planet part, not so hard. Um, the problem is anything that involves command line or something non-standard. Yeah, I know it, no one wants to do it. Yeah, even like pretty smart people who might program and be highly compensated for it for their day job. Another thing to build a mental model of at the command line is just annoying. And they, they probably would get more into it if their path was first they use Urbit and love it. And then figure out that stuff if they want to host it themselves or host other people. So... I think that, and so Tlon is, you know, obviously trying to solve that, doing Tlon hosting. I think the price point is too high. Um, it's around, I think, $30 or something. Now, yeah, I think it, I think it's slightly too high, not because most of the people you want on Orbit couldn't afford that, but because, like, when there's, like, kind of yet another service, people don't want to pay money up front for it to, sure. like, figure out this. So I think, like, just having a community ethos of, in the same way that Bitcoin has this ethos of you should run your own full node, and the answers are, like, somewhat sort of economic rational, but, like, somewhat religious, I think there should be, like, a religious ethos among passionate Urbit users of you should be running five to 50 other people, you know, on your own computers locally or in the cloud. Um, and I think we we're very close to that with these new backup tools, uh, with event log pruning that will also lower the hard drive requirements for that. And at that point, and then, you know, there's other things like, okay, how to, you know, run S3 for them if you want. But I think we just, at this point, we just need like a clear guide and simple steps for how to do that either on your own local Raspberry Pi or like honestly in the cloud. And then you can even use stuff like, you know, Urbit Bitcoin to like, you know, charge them once they like it, like, you know, $20, you know, every few months for it or something. But like, I think for people who are passionate about Urbit, there's a lot of value to running friends on it at cost, like friends and family. And the cost, the marginal cost for me right now, I, I do it for a couple of people. It's like marginal cost is probably in like one or two dollars a month. And people should, we should be building like a religious ethos around that. And I should make a note of myself for myself to like talk to more people in urban about this. How do you, how do you manage their, I think this is just a, you know, curiosity for those of us who might do it. How do you manage their keys? <laughs> um, yeah, great question. Um, so the bigger thing isn't their keys, it's their data. You have access to their data um, under most of these structures if you're running it. And if they start to understand Urbit well enough to not like that, that's a great intro to, oh, well, you do, like, you know, maybe it is time for you now to like pay like this little month a month or do it. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like, you know, I don't think they're going to like, as long as they trust you, there's like absolutely value for them in doing it. And I haven't really had any questions from people of like, why would I trust you to see my data now? Bigger question, I think, is about like key ownership and ship ownership, because that is a little bit of a different thing, right? Because ideally, if they do stop trusting you or want to get a clean start, they should be able to like, you know, breach or something like that and and do it over. Um, the answer is that it's pretty easy, right? Even right now for I have a few planets spawned with like master tickets. Uh, I can give them to someone like, for example, my brother be like, Here's your master ticket. You can you you know you know how to use like ETH wallets. Go transfer it to yourself here. Now you own it. Okay, do this quick step and then like send me your networking key and I'll set up everything for you. I, I think some model like that is like 
decently is like decently scalable. Yeah, that's how I do it as well. I, I you know, I, I do this for a couple of my students, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, I just I, I got them to yeah print out the don't don't show it to me, just print it out at home, put it in a put it in the bank, and and then send me your send me your key. So yeah, I'm doing that. Yeah. I might do this like for my dad for Christmas or something. Although urban is like a refreshingly like boomer free zone, and I'm not sure how I feel about changing <laughs> that. But I probably should like I probably should like bite the bullet at some point and be nice. Is there? Are, one? there, are, there, any, are there, there any? I was gonna ask. Is there a single bourbon? Is there a single bourbon? No, I I think like the the oldest. But I, I mean, there's there's some people that have talked about having learned um, to code on an Apple II, um, but you, that would still be pretty pretty squarely. Uh, early Gen X, yes. I think. No, there's, so there's definitely Gen X. Gen Xers, Gen Xers are the best. I'm not one, but they're like, yeah. There's something about them that's like they'll like totally do any of this. They're like super cynical. So they're like, you know, ready. It's, it's very noticeable when you're talking to a Gen Xer, and there's plenty of those on her. But but yeah, boomers. There's man, they are weird. Yeah, I mean, I'm always. I, I I mean, Josh and I are the same age. I think we're kind of in that liminal liminal space between. Gen X and whatever came after. I mean, you know, to, to me, the big difference is, I mean, I barely had an email address in high school um, huh. and fa- Facebook did not exist uh, until, or at least I was not aware of it until literally like the month after I graduated college. And oh, I didn't have, I didn't, I didn't have a cell phone until like a year or two after that. So, so like the area of like the technical connectivity world that I existed in, you know, is nothing like even I have two younger brothers and they just inhabit a different like epistemological universe than I do. Um, yeah. So. I think I think I was like we're probably about the same age, but I think I was just like on the faster part of that curve. So I was like a very online right. person in like in the late nineties or like actually probably my first experience with a um, kind of the transformative power of like network communities is like one you wouldn't expect at all. So just like really quick digression and uh, just to like answer why, like why I think Urbit will be so powerful uh, by analogy. So this was like the late nineties. I was like pretty into like, um, you know, competitive distance running. And at, at that time, like literally when I like first was on like my teams in high school, the state of knowledge was like, you ask your high school coach what to do, or like, you know, maybe there's some like myths about like a different coach at your school who has different ideas. And over the course of like just a year or two, it was really rapid. Um, all these like um, online running forums came up and got super popular with it, it was like kind of like the Zoomers of the time, just to get like the ethos, like kind of super online nerdy kids, but who are also like, you know, pretty good at sports. And everyone just started like kind of trading lots of like, you know, stories about their training or like reading like older books and seeing what people have done. And people just started training a lot harder and a lot more. And it went to like from like kind of the standard for like a good like mile 5K guy would be like you would run maybe 35, 40 miles a week to like mm-hmm. within like the space of it was fast. It was like three, four years, 70, 80, a hundred miles a week was just standard. And U S distance running exploded at that time. So like I ran the best in high school I ran was like maybe a four twenty three mile. And that was pretty good and enough to get like, no, that's you know, pretty awful. good. Yeah. Well, so just, just for reference though. And so that at the, at the time that would get you like a lot of interest and in like some good, like D one schools. 
But now that's by the time I like graduated college in like 2007, like, I mean, cause I would like help like the coaches there, like look at like, you know, incoming applicants and who we wanted to kind of push through admissions. And honestly, like 423 would just be like, yeah, you know, if his academics are good and we can get him in here on like, I was like, you know, just see if he works out. That's great. But we were like only interested in people running like 410 or something. Right. Um, and there was just that much bigger of a pool to choose from. And so, and the community was pretty tight. I have, I have and had a lot of good friends from that, even though I don't, do you know running at all now and yeah and so i think like urbit can enable that on like just a much bigger scale and enable that kind of like trust to build know how to be swapped in like kind of small trust-based communities and for people to like just drastically accelerate on a lot of the results they get so that's like the long way of saying like kind of my my experience with online stuff i was i was on i think i was like the 500th user or so on facebook so i was also like pretty aware of that Right. Um, and then I, well, I think it was, it was to, sort of lim- it was it was limited. Right. Um, but you implied that you 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 were Harvard College. Right. So the um, yeah, yeah, I was in, I was in I, class like AI, the intro AI class with Zuckerberg before he dropped yeah, out. Yeah. Because yeah. um, I, I found out about it because my first job out of college was the National Science Foundation grant to go to China. And it was out of um, Central Washington University. But the, the way everybody else there was from Brown or Stanford or whatever. Mm. They, they, so they had been in that first generation of a like they had Gmail addresses, which I'd never heard of. I knew Google. But, <laughs> yep, and then, yep. And then, and then they had um, they, they had uh, fa- uh, Facebook. And so like and I, I think that like probably by the end of the summer, it had opened up to I went to GW. So it, it had opened up to mm-hmm. alumni from there. And then I mean, I was on it for a few years but just, you know, I don't know. It was just like was not really a big part of my life. And then when I was in business school, used it heavily, kind of. I mean, just like because that's what everybody else was using mm-hmm. for those those two years. And it was just, you know, I mean, if people were doing a party or whatever, like they weren't going to email you. So. Yeah. But like, honestly, like, I mean, like after graduation, just like dropped it again and like deleted everything and, and lost like a lot of like cool pictures and stuff that I put up. Yeah, me too. But, yeah. Same, same yeah. story. Yeah. I mean. These tools just like they, they have like I think what we see a lot is like just the latent potential energy in allowing coordination, especially like kind of iterated high trust coordination. And then these yeah. tools just suck so much because they're all based on this kludgy like Web 2.0 hack that like they can't they can't expand economically without destroying that proposition. Um, yeah. And so like people there's like this kind of bane of thought I see on Urbit sometimes, which is. Oh yeah, enjoy Urbit now before all you know the people. Essentially, before that happens to it, and like they're just wrong. The technical yeah. foundation well, they don't of Urbit understand is to- the technology, right? I mean, like you know, there's there, you you can make Urbit what you what you want of it, and you you have that agency and control the way that you don't with um, other things. I mean, like Twitter, you can kind of hack it together by making your account private, blocking everybody. I mean, like you know, but that's a very labor intensive approach. And with with Urbit, I think it's much, much more possible to do it. But I agree. I mean, and it's not just on the social media side. The point I can't remember if it came up in one of the episodes, but compared it to the MBTA in Boston or the MTA in New York. Like if you got to sit down and design a subway and public transportation system for these cities today, like there, there is no way you would do it the same huh. way. And, you know, they did it. 
because those were the needs of those time, that time and the technical capacity a hundred years ago. And you just kind of cobble it all together. And so like, like, you know, New York city is the best example of just having an insane amount of like infrastructure and stuff that was just thrown up on top of each other. Nobody even knows where they are. If you want to build a building there, you've got to get like 27 different companies to sign off because, you know, and some of them are like moribund and defunct, but that's where they put wires or pipes or something. And it's just not really smooth. And so, you know, Urbit is fresh. People understand the internet and connectivity a lot better. And, you know, it's basically a fresh stack that you can build on top of much more cleanly. In my opinion. To make that analogy to New York and Boston, like, kind of come to life, like, isn't it, like, just really, like, liberating and, like, it kind of gives a sense of possibility that we negotiated this entire conversation purely through Urbit um, and found each other there and built enough trust and, like, we didn't have to be in freaking, like, live in, like, New York or San Francisco or Boston where, like, essentially these cities have just been able to extract massive kind of uh, rents for being the the locus of these networks that are extremely valuable. Like, like honestly, yeah. it probably was a mistake for me not to, for example, you know, live in San Francisco from 2011 to 2020. I probably should have done that given my interests. Um, <laughs> but like, it just feels honestly, I just hate it aesthetically, and it's just incredibly amazing now that not only are like those have those networks been completely smashed for the most part, but that also like new tools are like kind of I think giving the advantage to people who are really comfortable just like kind of fully living online yeah yeah it's really awesome i just feel like excited every day that's funny i'm the exact opposite about san francisco i mean i've only been there a couple of times my first time i was like walking down california street and a guy just totally tweaked out came (laughs) accused accused me of stealing his midget he was like, you stole my midget. <laughs> and, and I was like, I, and then like I went, like I bought uh, grilled cheese for like $12 or something. Um, <laughs> and it was like three by and like a glass of milk. And that's all that they sold. Um, and I was like, why would anybody live here? This is. Oh, stupid. no, no, sorry. Don't, don't then, get me wrong. And then, but then I looked at the bay. I, I like, you know, walked and I was like in the bay and everything. And I was like, oh, like I totally get it. Like I would probably go through like any number of indignities to live here because it's just pretty uh pretty beautiful it's but. really good it's, and, amazing. it's amazing real estate yeah and yeah i think that you should explain why the hell you stole that tweaker's midget right yeah. i mean I, I was yourself. very very apologetic i i don't know i mean i have like uh without like having to go experience volunteering with homeless um and like rescue missions and stuff and so i'm pretty able to uh deal with that but he was like pretty scary um because i mean like the the scariest are when when homeless men are um on drugs and extremely fit um you have to be extreme (laughs) like like super careful and this is like you like uh, wonder like what led like what led to that how are they working like it's not easy to kind of stay in good shape yeah, this is why, I mean, like, to me, like, New Haven was super scary because, like, I have never seen a collection of, like, more jacked homeless people. Um, and it's, like, they, they, they have no, like, excuse for not, like, working in, like, as lumberjacks or whatever, you know, and, like, because they, like, yeah. I think you should definitely uh, leave this part in, by the way, about the... Yeah, 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 de- yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think you're, like, in the squarely in the kind of funny based like thing as opposed to cancellation yeah yeah no i think we can we can probably uh co- cobble it cobble it in but um, 
not. <laughs> Do we leave it on stolen midgets? I don't know if that's. <laughs> yeah, the only thing. Yeah, the only thing I would add is like just a brief call action, which is like if you fit into one of two categories, which is uh, you really think that like. Urbit could do X thing that's really important very soon, and you don't think it's going to get done unless you like squeak your wheel. Uh, contact me at timlook-miptev. I'm sure it'll be in the thing here on Urbit. If you don't have put it in the Urbit, notes. I guess you can DM me on Twitter, like uh, my like fake handle, like Basile Sportif, but or contact like Will Ref Publix on Urbit. So yeah, first category would be. Uh, you really think Urbit could do something soon and it'll be really useful. Uh, let us know because there, there is some capacity for, you know, either throwing bounties out or like just starting to like think about something and like thinking whether, you know, resources should go there. And then second, if you like are a good programmer who doesn't get Hoon and thinks it's weird, but you want to do it, or if you already get Hoon, but you don't know what to make, uh, also contact me because we definitely have like, um some spare like needs for they, they can be compensated especially with like urbit um stars um so some spare needs in a lot of different areas especially at the like user app infrastructure level so that's that's what i would say there and solving the tower of hanoi problem well yeah i think we've like had some good solutions but i think nothing completely optimal so I, that's really really you know kind of what we're really working towards so if you have any good ideas on Tower of Hanoi or kind of novel approaches, I think just that would really make everyone's time on Urbit worth it. Thank you for listening. Please visit us at www.thestack.link or find us on Twitter at thestack.link, all one word. And please remember to like and subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes. I'm Josh. And with Andy, we are The Stack. Stack.